Thank you, Lord. We would be nothing if it were not for the miracle of your presence in our lives. Thank you for being here present with us now. Shake our hearts, challenge our hearts, challenge our minds so that we step into whatever you call us into right now in this moment. Pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to ask you a question that you probably have been asking yourself. It's a little bit different than a New Year's resolution. But uh, when was the last time you took a huge risk? When was the last time you took a huge risk? New Year's resolutions aren't huge risks. Sometimes... Your New Year's resolution is summarized within two weeks of you making them. But when was the last time you took a huge risk? You know, um, there was, I don't know, maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, I started recognizing these, uh, are memes that old? They're about that old, right? So I started recognizing these, these memes, and there's this one that's been circling around for, for years but it's typically of a man risking his life, doing something outside the balcony, risking his life, changing a light bulb, hanging on to the curtain as he's trying to do something. And at the top of it, it says, why women live longer than men? It's true. And I, I actually wondered, do women actually live longer than men? They do. Yeah. Because Google told me so, so I know those things. And, and, and I, I looked it up, and I was like, what, what are the reasons why women live longer than men? Three factors I discovered. Biological was one. Um, social was another one. And behavioral. So here's what I think about the behavioral part. So I believe that women can analyze and assess risk better than men. Do you agree with that, ladies? Hey, hey, man, mm -hmm. preach it. So listen, so, so case in point, one of my all-time favorite videos, and this is going to make me sound like a horrible father, is of a dad who told his young son, hey, I'll give you 20 bucks if you can sneak up on that cow out in the field. He calls it a steer because you know he's country. And you know he's a farmer. He calls it, I'll give you 20 bucks if you go over there and sneak up on that steer and jump on its back while it's laying out in the, in the cow field. And so I'm going to show you that video. And what you're going to hear is his little sister as he's describing what he has told his son. And you, you hear the little sister say this, because she's already at a young age analyzing risk, and she goes, that's not safe. So you'll hear that. So okay, take a look at this video. He's trying to sneak up on that steer over there and jump on his back. I told him I'd give him $20. That's not safe. 
<laughs> You're right, <laughs> Emily. It's not. <laughs> oh, this is so good. Let me tell you something. That is great fathering right there. So, so let me just let, let me just share with you. Every single one of you that is a mother, raise your hand. Check your pulse. Check your pulse. So every single one of you as a mother, what you're trying to figure out is, well, did he have to go to the hospital? Is he, is he paralyzed? Is he in a wheelchair? What happened to him? And here's the difference. Every single one of you fathers are wondering, did he get the 20 bucks? And look at this. Check this out. 20 bucks. Yeah. All the dads cheer. So, so here, here, you guys, you can analyze risk a lot better than, than men. And my wife tells me that quite a bit because she has announced to me that if it was up to me to be with the kids alone, they would be dead. That's it. And the dog would be dead too. I've heard that many of times. Dog be dead, kids would be dead. It's a good thing I'm alive. And it's probably the case that there's not a lot of children death that happens because moms are around, right? And, and so I remember when the kids were young, um, we had trees, and they weren't quite as big as they are now, but my kids like to climb trees. And Deborah coming out the back porch and yelling out from the back porch and saying, don't climb up any higher because you can fall and break a bone or die. And then she would turn around and go back in. And so both kids, Haley and Noah, are up in the first branch of this little tree, and I'd look at them. They'd look down at me, and I'd say, climb up to the top. And like little monkeys, they'd be giggling and go all the way up to the top. And, and these are small trees. So, so the top of the tree would actually start bending with both of them up there. And, and, and there's another time when they first got skateboards. I said, uh, my, my wife says, now, wear a helmet, pads, don't go down the cul-de-sac because there's a hill and you can get road rash, break a bone, concussion, or die. And so as soon as she left somewhere, I was like, hey, kids, who wants to get a concussion? We do. And man, they would go down. You should see the grin on their face. Because at that age, not even Haley, I don't think Haley ever got the risk and analyzer mind either. But, but they don't know how to analyze risk. And apparently either dads much at all either. So this New Year's Eve, we were separated as a family for the first time in a long time. Haley was gone to see some friends in California. Noah was with some friends and. And we have a family group text. And um, you know what the name of the family group text is? It's Mom Rocks. So that's the name of the family group text. And, um, and Noah sends a video with no explanation. No explanation at all. So here's the video. Watch this. Now, that, the loud scream that sounded like a girl scream was one of the boys. Um, so it wasn't girls were involved in that. But, but uh, here, here's what's interesting. Noah sends that. He wasn't really wise, but I haven't taught him wisdom yet to send it with mom in, in it. Because this, this is what uh, the text was. Noah's video at the top, Deborah, be careful. Noah, sorry, we just went to the store to get more. Deborah, you had better, this is, this is mom, you had better be careful. 
That's how it sounds, that text message, by the way. Don't be stupid, okay? Noah goes, already done. <laughs> and that was the end of text messages. Boys sometimes tend to risk their lives a little bit more. And moms know how to analyze risk. So here's a question. What does the very first miracle of Jesus have to do with risk? What does the very first miracle of Jesus have to do with risk? Well, you're not going to know until the very end of the sermon, so pay attention. So, in John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is headed to a wedding. It says, on the third day, what happened on the first and second day? Well, you have to jump to chapter 1 to read what happens on the first and second day, and he was collecting disciples. So then on the third day, he goes to a wedding. It took place in Cana in Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. The only thing that you can get out of that is this, that somehow... Whoever was getting married must have been either family friends or related to Jesus' family because they're all there. And you'll see that later, Jesus' mother is really involved in the wedding uh, uh, ceremony anyways. Not the ceremony, but the reception. And so here's the difference between a first century Jewish wedding and weddings today. So first century Jewish wedding, they didn't have venues that you paid tens of thousands of dollars for. Um, they, they, they didn't do weddings in the temple either. So a wedding ceremony, you would go as a group, whoever was invited, to the bride's house. That's where the ceremony was done. Then the reception part, they would go over as a group to the groom's house. And this wasn't like a four-hour reception and the couple goes off to their honeymoon. This was one day two days, three days, up to a week of celebrating marriage. That's nuts. Imagine that. Those of you who just recently got married or know or about to get married, calculate how much money that would be because people are spending the night. There's no hotels around the area. They're spending the night at your house and they're eating and drinking and, and, and they're hanging out for a whole week of celebration. That's the difference between weddings today and weddings back then. And so, Verse 3 says this, something critical happened here. Critical. When the wine was gone, uh-oh, Jesus' mother said to him, it wasn't a question, just a statement. They have no more wine. That was it. They have no more wine. She didn't request anything. She just said the words, they have no more wine. Here's why that's important. This was a huge embarrassment to the people who were responsible for having all things ready for a weeks-long celebration. And so some of you here are stuck and have wondered for years and years and years, well, when Jesus turned water into wine, was it Martinelli's? Or was it the fermented stuff? Guess what? 
the text has nothing to do with whether it was alcoholic or not. And if you read the text, you'll never know. Because the word wine in Greek, do the research yourself. There's a lot of kookiness out there, but do the research yourself. I have my personal opinion, but to be honest to the Greek, oinos doesn't tell you whether it's Welch's grape juice or Martinelli's or doesn't, doesn't tell you that. Because what this text is about is about Jesus revealing his divine authority and glory over nature. And sometimes we want to focus on the minor things and not on this crazy thing that Jesus did where he took plain water, made wine with it, and used no grape juice, no grapes, no vines. He didn't need to include a farmer for agriculture purposes. He just did it. And sometimes we don't realize how huge that was for him to reveal his glory and authority over nature. That's the focal point. And to run out of wine, like I said, is an unthinkable thing, an embarrassment to those who were involved. And Jesus, his mother, went to him and said this. And let me, let me just ask you this question. How many of you raised your hand have ever been to a Filipino potluck? Raise your hand. Yeah, a few of you feel blessed right now. So when you have been, this is so sad that this many people have never been to a Filipino potluck. We've got to change this. Justin, we're going to have to change this. So here's the thing. Those of you who've been blessed enough to go to a Filipino potluck, have you ever been to one where they ran out of food? Never. Never. There is never a food shortage. You're sitting there and you've eaten everything you can possibly eat. And then some auntie comes along and goes, eat, eat, eat. And literally you've got punset that you have in your pockets because you don't want to offend anybody. You can go with a five-gallon bucket and they can fill it for you and you'll have food for a month. That's how much food. So their plan for the world to arrive and somebody dropped the ball at this wedding because they didn't plan for that. I don't know if people were drinking extra. I don't know if there was uninvited guests in the community. Somebody didn't plan, and it was a major issue on the reputation of the family that was doing the hosting. And Mary approached Jesus, and Jesus responds, verse 4. Be careful how you read this, because we can't read this in Western culture mentality. Because we automatically think, man, Jesus was pretty disrespectful to his mother. It's not the case here. And he says, woman, why do you in involve me? My hour has not yet come. This was a term of endearment. Woman, why do you involve me? If you want to test this, <laughs> then next time your wife or mother tells you to do something, I dare you to try to make that a term of endearment these days. Woman, why do you involve me? If you're alive, I'd love to hear the story, but this is a different culture, a different time, and so he's not disrespecting his mother in any way. He's just saying, you know that my authority comes from the Father, and I do nothing unless he tells me to. My hour has not yet come. Mom didn't say anything at all. She believed that Jesus would take care of the situation. 
And so she just stated, we are out of wine. They have run out. She left that on Jesus. And then his mother said nothing more. We don't know if there was body language. We don't know if she did the mother look. Mm-hmm. We don't know that. But his mother turned around, walked to the servants in verse 5, and just told them simply, do whatever he tells you to. Do whatever he tells you to. She knew he would do what was right. So Jesus looked around, and he saw over there in the corner, in verse 6, six stone water jars. These were the water jars that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Understand, what's contained in there when there is water in the jars is for the washing of the hands and the feet. Jesus looked at those stone jars and said to them, because each of them holding about 20 to 30 gallons, that's what the text tells us, so at a minimum, that's 120 gallons of water altogether with those six stone jars. They did not have a spigot where they could go to and just say, oh, okay, that's easy. They had to take those jars somewhere and bring them back. And then it says this, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they did. They were obedient. They did as Jesus' mother asked them to. Then he told them, now draw some out. This is verse 8. Draw some out. Take it to the master of the banquet. What did they do? They were obedient. So they did so. So the master of the ceremonies was kind of like the Gordon Ramsay of the day. Before food was distributed amongst the guests, master of ceremonies would have to inspect it. Okay, that's a beautiful placement. Go ahead and take it out. Oh, let me taste that. Perfect. Take it out. Oh, you got some wine? Let me try it. There you go. It's a Gordon Ramsay is the master of ceremonies. He's out there and he's waiting. And so here you got servants taking what they saw was water and a cup of it to the Gordon Ramsay of the day. Were they nervous? Perhaps. We don't know that. It doesn't say so in the text. We can just imagine. So they take this cup of wine, and here's the comment. The master of the banquet tested the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside. He says, come here, come here, come here, come here. Everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you saved the best till last. Can you imagine making Gordon Ramsay happy? This guy was pumped. You saved the best till last. I don't know how this miracle happened. I don't know if, if the water actually turned to wine once it reached his lips. I don't know if the water turned to wine uh, when the servant scooped the water up and took it. Don't know how and when it actually happened. Just God knows that. But all we know is that 
Mom made a statement to Jesus. Jesus made a request to the servants. Servants acted in faith and a miracle happened. That's all we know. That sequence is pretty simple. Do you remember my first question? When was the last time you took a huge risk? So here is the risk taking I talked about at the beginning. What does this whole first miracle have to do with risk? I'm going to tell you, I read this over the holidays over and over and over again, and I'm not sure why the Holy Spirit prompted me to focus on the last six words of this verse, but I couldn't shake it. And so this verse in verse 11, the last verse, it says this, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Up until that point, no miracle had happened. Up until that point, no glory had been shown. John states here this was the first time of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And then here are the last six words. And his disciples believed in him. Now I wondered, well, did they not believe in him before this? And that's a wrong statement because they believed in him in chapter one. In fact, they actually confessed. You have Nathaniel confessing, you are the Messiah, the King of Israel. You had Andrew, Peter's brother, who confessed, you are the son of God. So they believed him before the miracle. But then now they are solidifying this belief after the miracle. And here's where I landed on the risk. This, this shook me and maybe I needed it more than you, which is why the spirit had me dwell on this for a little bit. And this might speak to somebody here. But before Jesus' disciples saw a miracle, experienced a miracle, they chose to follow Jesus with abandoned faith. Before they saw anything happen to prove his glory, they chose to follow Jesus with blind faith. The disciples did not weigh the risk involved when Jesus called them. They just followed. None of them asked for proof. They just followed. They did not look at alternate options or create org charts and then analyze the risk in following him. They just followed him. They followed before seeing a miracle. They followed before seeing evidence. The disciples gave up everything before they had legitimate proof. That's risky. When was the last time you took a huge risk for God. 
that required blind faith. Sit on that for a moment. I talked about it last night with a group of high school kids at my house. When was the last time you made a huge, you, how did I say it? The last time you took a huge risk for God that required faith. If you think through all the disciples, some of them left their careers. They had businesses. You had commercial fishermen. You even had an IRS agent that was part of the group. And then that IRS agent, IRS agent was looking over his shoulder at this political anarchist that was also a part of Jesus's disciples. And he left behind all of his political ideologies in order to follow Jesus. They left careers. That's a huge risk. Some of them had families to support. It's a huge risk. So I want you to sit on this question for the next week. Hopefully you don't let a week go by. But in 2024, what is the greatest risk you can take for Jesus? Understand that when it comes to risk, no risk you take is comfortable. So if the risk is too easy, it's not risky enough. There is no person that you will read about in all of scripture. This is an awesome discussion that we had last night with some of the high schoolers. And I asked them, I said, who in the Bible made huge risks? And they went through all these incredible names and recited the stories. So a huge risk requires you to be uncomfortable. So in that uncomfortable mindset, what is the greatest risk that you can take for God? Could you imagine when we're in heaven? And I, I use this, this kind of analogy that, what if there's like a little fireplace and everybody's hanging out at the fire in heaven? And, and, and across from you is, is Abraham. And then you've got Noah. And over here you have Rahab. You have Esther. You have all of these, these people collectively and they start to share their story of risk. And then it's your turn to tell the story. How would it add up? Because I believe that God is calling each of you to a great risk that you are very fearful to take a step forward into. And I can guarantee you that all of that circle around the fireplace, as you listen to the stories of Moses, as you listen to the stories of Rahab and, and the disciples, 
as you listen to them, not one of them would regret the risk that they took to be sold out and have abandoned faith. Completely just, I'm all in. I'm all in, Jesus. So in 2024, what is the greatest risk that you can take for Jesus? Lord, let us dwell on that question. May that question wake us up at night. I'm praying that that question will haunt us because we avoid it because we don't like to be uncomfortable. And so I'm praying in the name of Jesus that a brave generation, a brave church that has spiritual boldness will awaken and be willing to risk it all for Jesus. Before any evidence, before any miracle, before any sign, we pray in this moment that we will just step in faith and accept the risk to follow you completely. Amen.